First John chapter number three, and um, this text is a little bit heavy, so I, I want to just kind of start off with that. Um, we're going to deal with some things this morning about God's love that um, might be uh, challenging to the way that the way that we think about God, the way that we see His love, the way that we understand His love, and um, and, and, in, and in some cases it might be something that you struggle with and. And I would encourage you, if you get through the message this morning and you think, man, I just really did not get that, I would just welcome you to come and talk with me in my office and, um, and challenge me, because I, I have to grow and learn. I'm always in that process of sanctification, just like you are, so I'm not beyond learning and growing. And so feel free to challenge me, and, and then feel free to listen if I, if I challenge you in return. It is so important that we understand this issue of God's love because it is a it is a um, it is a mistaught doctrine of Scripture. It is totally misunderstood in our culture today, and people stand on God's love in such a way that is unbiblical. And, and what John is going to do is he's going to address this for us, and he's going to address it in such a way as being one of the foundations for our eternal security. A, a biblical understanding and a biblical appreciation for God's love will bring a person to a place of, of security, eternal security, that they will know beyond a shadow of a doubt that they are part of God's family and that they will know that that can never change, that nothing that they can do will ever get them out of God's family. No matter how bad they are, no matter how uh, many evil things that they do, if they are in God's love, um, according to Romans 8, there's nothing that can get them out of God's love. Yet, there are also those who are not in God's love who think they are. And understanding God's love um, biblically will help us to, get, to help us to understand that and help us to get to a place where we do feel that unquenchable security that we need to have in Him. Let, let, let me read it to you, and then I'm going to give you a little story of, of something that's happened in my life that hopefully will unpack it a little bit for you. And then we'll just un we'll unpack the text of Scripture here. John says in verse 1 of chapter number 3, C, and I just want you to stop there because there is a pause here. Um, this is an exclamation. Um, it's almost like um, Paul, or not Paul, but John would be, would be kind of um, getting everybody's attention with this word and, and, and almost like stop what you're doing and listen, Okay. So, so we want to stop and just kind, of, just kind of take in that word see, and we'll unpack it here in a moment. But he says see, or behold, or, or look at this, stare at this, what kind of love the Father hath given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. And I love that phrase there. If you want to have a, if you have a pen in your, if you have a pen and you don't mind writing in your Bibles, underline that phrase, and so we are. In other words, this is who we are. We are children of God. We are children of God this morning. And, and, and the basis for being a child of God is, is in the phrase before that. We are children of God based upon the love of God for us. And so we are. And he goes on and says, The reason why the world does not know us is because it does, did not know him. Beloved, we are children of God now. And again, I just want you, if you, do, if you don't mind underlining in your Bible, just underline that word now. We are children of God now. 
And it doesn't talk about being a child of God yesterday. It doesn't talk about being a child of God tomorrow. It talks about the fact that we are a child of God now. What an encouraging, just simple word that's right there to help us understand and appreciate what we have in this very moment of our life. There are days that I go through, and I don't know if you have these kind of days, but I do, where I'm discouraged. I get a little bit down. I know you think, well, you're a pastor. You're not supposed to get discouraged. Well, maybe I should invite you into my world a little bit, and you'll understand why there's some discouragement that pastors experience. But I'm always encouraged by two things. These are the days where things are just really, really bad, right? I'm encouraged, one, the fact that God has given me life, right? I'm alive. If you're sitting here this morning, you're alive. That's pretty good, isn't it? Right? Okay. For all the rest of you, wow. It's good to be alive this morning, amen? All right, good. I'm glad to hear that. But you know what? You know what probably even tops that is I'm saved. That I can honestly say that I'm one of God's children. And that those are two blessings that no circumstance, no situation, no problem, no relationship issues, those are two things that 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 don't change that are gifts from God every single day that we wake up. They're blessings. So when you think about that, when you wake up tomorrow morning, you think about that phrase, I am a child of God now. I am a child of God now. And he goes on and says, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. In other words, we haven't yet seen what we're becoming and that's encouraging too, isn't it? <laughs> if, we all, if all we had to look forward to was what we've already seen, <laughs> we'd be in pretty bad shape, right? We look, to forward, we look forward to something this morning that we haven't yet seen. We haven't yet experienced. We're, we're moving towards this goal. Um, we're being conformed into the image of Christ We've never seen it. We don't know what it looks like in, in many ways. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to draw this parallel this morning um, throughout the sermon with Abraham. When God told Abraham, I'm going to send you to a place that you've never seen. You don't know what it looks like. You don't know. I'm just going to send you there. I'm going to guide you to get there. But you won't even know when you get there. Matter of fact, if you study the scriptures, you'll find that when Abraham arrived in the promised land, he didn't know he was there. God told him, get up, Abraham, look to the north, south, east, and west, which means basically what? It means Abraham is standing right in the middle of it. And he says, this is all yours. It's extraordinary what we're going to be, what we're going to become. And our promised land, according to scriptures, is not necessarily as much a place as it is a condition that we are becoming We are being made perfect. We are being made in the image of Christ. And that's the the pursuit. Now, do any of us know what it looks like? Some of us think we do, right? Well, it looks like me. No, it doesn't look like you. It doesn't look like me. None of us know what it looks like. We have an example of it in Christ and in his word, but we see it partially. Even, even Christ, the Bible says, even Christ came in the veiled flesh, right? When Jesus, when God manifests himself in the Old Testament, he manifests himself in a way that was veiled, in, in clouds, right? 
because they could not see the full glory of God. Christ was the same way. He came with the veil of the flesh because we could not see the fullness of the glory of God. It would be impossible for us. So he came like us, not sinful, but he came like us in that veiled flesh. We are being conformed into this, into this, into Christ-likeness, into perfection in such a way that when we reach heaven, we will finally see him as he is because we will not have the veiling of the flesh. We will be able to see God for who he is. He goes on and says, and everyone who has this, and everyone who hopes thus is in him purifies himself even as he is pure. Let me give you a little illustration. I was talking with a gentleman probably a few years ago, and this gentleman was of an Arminian persuasion. He was a kind of a works-oriented um, gospel person. He believed that we were saved by... Uh, he, he, he wouldn't say this, but ultimately when you dug down deep, there was something that man had to do in order to be saved. So I asked him this question. I said, do you believe that salvation is based totally on God's love for us and Christ Jesus' work? John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. For many of us, that is the foundation, that is the basis for our salvation. That's what we believe in has brought us salvation. Christ's love, God's love for us manifested to us through Christ's work on the cross. We sang songs about that. Uh, Romans 5 and verse 8, but God manifested his love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, right? So we have the, we have the, the essence of, of God's love being manifest through Christ and that is the foundation for our salvation, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourself, it is a gift of God, not of work, so that no man can boast. So when I asked the question, do you believe that, God's, that salvation is based upon God's love and Christ's work, his response was an unequivocal yes. Of course, salvation is based upon God's love and Jesus Christ's death. And we would all say what to that? We would all say amen to that. We would all say that God's love is the foundation for our salvation, and that Christ's death is the, found, is the expression of God's love. It's what makes salvation, it's what secures salvation for us, okay? Knowing this man's belief, I pressed him a little bit, and I asked him this question, doesn't God love everyone? And didn't Jesus Christ die for everyone in the same way? So what happens at this moment, he was forced, he was challenged with the question, if salvation is based on God's love and Jesus Christ's work, and, God's, and God loves and Jesus' works and works in the same way for everyone, then everyone must be saved. This is what we call universalism. If God loves everyone the same and Jesus Christ died for everyone in the same way and salvation is based 100% on those two things, then everyone must be saved, right? This, this gentleman went on to explain how God's love and Jesus Christ's work are not decisive factors in salvation, May I, may I submit to you that that is heresy? 
To say that God's love and Jesus Christ's work are not decisive in salvation is heresy. God's love and Jesus Christ's sacrifice on the cross is salvation. It is the gospel. But he, in defense of his position, had to go on and explain how God's love and Jesus Christ's work were not decisive factors in salvation. But the ultimate decisive factor in salvation was something that we do, right? So they went on to, he went on to describe how, um, and I just put a bunch of things down here that we hear in our culture today. There are certain prayers that you can say that if you say those prayers, it kind of activates God's love and Christ's sacrifice for you. Um, there are certain acts of faith that you can do, perhaps being catechized or baptized or taking communion or um, giving money to the church, or being a church member. There are a number of different ways by which people um, talk about activating God's love and Jesus Christ's work on the cross in our lives so that we can be saved. And so I basically said to this person, I said, so basically what you're saying is, is Jesus Christ's work and God's love really have no impact at all on our salvation. And the response that this person gave me was, yes, that's true. And again, that is a heretical statement. Jesus Christ's work on the cross and God's love for us are crucial to our salvation. Amen? They are the essence of our salvation. They are our salvation. And and, and we have to, in order to understand that, and, and again, this person's theology, I mean, at that point it became an argument, as you know, most of these cases do, because now you're dealing with a misunderstanding of doctrine that is un, unpacking, um, exposing uh, a, a, a flaw in, in what this person believes. It's like the idea of limited atonement. Some people believe that the atonement is limited in the sense that it was only meant for a specific group of people, what, what we would call the elect. Other people believe that the atonement is limited in the fact that it has no power to save people. That it cannot actually save, the atonement only makes salvation possible, but it doesn't actually save. So Christ's blood was not sufficient enough to save someone, it was just sufficient enough to make salvation possible for someone. They actually have to do the defining work to accomplish salvation. Jesus Christ did not come to seek and to offer salvation to the lost, did he? He came to seek and to Save the lost. And that is what we have to understand and grasp about God's love. Listen, remember this. If your eternal security is based this morning on the fact that God loves you and that Jesus Christ died for you, how many of you would say, just by the shake of heads, that your security this morning is based on God loves you and that Jesus died for you? Just shake your head yes. If you don't agree with that, shake your head no. Okay. Listen to me. What security is that? If God sends people to hell every day that he loves and died for the same way that he loved and died for you. What security is that? Is there any security at all? Should believers be feeling totally confident that God loves everybody the same, Jesus died for everybody the same, and half of them go to hell and half of them go to heaven? Is that security? 
that leaves us in a very unstable situation, doesn't it? We've got to understand what does God mean about his love and how can we see and understand his love in such a way that it brings us to a place where we, where we know that we are secure eternally in Christ. We have to remember that John writes, the very um, foundation of John's letter is that you might know that you have eternal life, 1 John 5, 13. These things are written unto you that believe on the Son of God that you might know that you have eternal life. That's the reason he writes this book of the Bible. So, so that's what we're going to see here. And so I want to unpack it here for you. Again, how does God's love, and I'm going to remove Christ's sacrifice because they're, they're, they're connected. We're just going to talk about God's love specifically because that's what John talks about here. But how does God's love, how does God's love bring security in the heart and life of a believer? Eternal security, real security, a confidence that, um, that Christians ought to have, a boldness. So let's look at it. Let's break it down together, if you will. There are three things that we find here in our text. Number one, if you're taking notes, is a, is a focus on God's love. This is, this is not um, meant to, to, for us to understand it. John doesn't talk about initially understanding what kind of love he's talking about. But he, the first thing that he mentions is, again, he brings out this, this term, this exclamation, and it's also a, a command. It, it kind of has both um, it's a command and an exclamation at the same time. What John is saying is, is, he's saying to look. He's saying to focus on. Here's a group of believers, Christians, in, a, in a, um, perhaps a situation where they were struggling with their security because of what had happened, because of the split that they had experienced, because of the false doctrine that was being promoted. And they're perhaps somewhat very unstable in their theology. Here's what John says to them. John says to them, focus Look at, stare at, meditate on God's love for you. In, in saying this, what John is doing is, is he's, he's pulling them away from their focus on whom? Okay, right away, and, and many of you said that, right away we understand that John is pulling them away from a focus on self. Okay, the, 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 the greatest obstacle to our eternal security is if we focus on ourselves. And I, I'll give you an illustration of this. I grew up in a home. I grew up in a, in a very religious home. My dad's a pastor, and all my brothers are pastors, and so it's kind of in the family. But, but growing up, I had, this, I had this mindset that if I said a certain prayer, that I would be saved, that my salvation was based upon this certain prayer that I said, Okay. What's, what's interesting is that every time I felt like I wasn't saved, I struggled with my salvation, I'd always ask myself, did I say the right words, right? Anybody else in here experienced? Do I have to be all alone by myself this morning, right? I focused on, did I say the right words? And so then I was like, okay, so this time I'm going to say the right words, and if I say the right words, then surely God's going to save me because this time I said the right words. And I cannot even tell you how many times I did that. It was, I mean, it was probably in the hundreds. Every time I, I sinned, I was like, oh, I must have said the wrong words, so I need to go back and say the right words again. 
And it's not just about a prayer, but some people look at it from a standpoint of uh, certain catechisms, and they think, well, if I, if I just go through this catechism class again, or if I just read my Bible more, or if I just go to church more, or if I just do this more and this more, that, that everything's going to work out and I'm going to be saved. Listen, if your focus is that this morning, you're always going to deal with eternal security. You're always going to struggle with it, because the basis of your eternal security is you. It's based upon what you've done or what you're doing. And that's always going to fall short of what God expects that's from us. That's what the Lord wants us to focus on when we're, when we're determining whether or not we are eternally secure. To look at his love for us. And man, listen, if God loves us, right? If God loves us with a salvific love, then according to Romans 8, there's no way that we cannot be in that love, right? There's no way that we can, we can leave that love. John 3 and verse 14 and 15, the Bible says, And as Moses was lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so also must the Son of Man be lifted up. And whoever believes on him or whoever looks on him, whoever, whoever focuses on him, whoever puts their attention on Christ has eternal life. And what is Christ an expression of? Romans 5 and verse 8. That God manifests his love toward us and that while we were still sinners, what? So when we focus on Christ and what he did for us on the cross, we're, we're, in, we're directly focused on what else? We're directly focused on God's love for us. We're focused on how much God loves us. John 6 and verse 40, For this is the will of God that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up in the last days. So we start off with, if we want to have eternal security, as John does here, he says to, to stop looking at yourself, and, and, and one step forward is, is the other thing that we stop looking at when we start looking at Christ is we, start, we stop looking at other people too, don't we? Because we have a whole other group of people in the context here of Scripture that we're also stirring things up within the people's hearts about their eternal security, right? I mean, all this false doctrine was being, being floating around, and all of a sudden the people in the church were confused about whether they were saved or not. Listen, focus on... Focus on Christ. Is Christ enough? Was Christ's sacrifice on the cross sufficient? Was it? Was Christ's sacrifice on the cross totally satisfying to God the Father and his wrath? Isaiah 53 says that he was satisfied with the sacrifice of his son. Was Christ's sacrifice for you? You've got to answer those questions. Those are the questions by which you're going to become totally secure in who you are in Christ. And that is the found, that's how we're going to begin. We're going to begin to understand that we are safe, we are secure, everything is okay because God loves us, sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins to save us. Now, Number two, he says this. He says, see, behold, stop what you're doing and look to Christ. And then he says this, see what kind of love the Father hath bestowed upon us. 
The second thing that's important when it comes to our eternal security, which is based upon God's love, is this, that there are distinctions in God's love. There are distinctions. When John says, behold, what kind of love God has shown to us, what he is saying in that phrase is this, God doesn't show everybody the same kind of love. God shows people different kinds of love. Behold what kind of love God has shown to us. You may struggle with that, but remember this. We're created in the image of God, are we not? How many of you love everyone the same? Does anybody in here have a wife? Okay. Does anybody in here love their wife more than they love other women in the world? Come on, guys. You're all going to you're not sleeping at my house tonight, so you better say amen. Listen, we love differently, don't we? How many of you love your children more than you love the neighbor's children? Right? How many of you love your neighbor more than you love people that live in another state that you don't even know? How many of you love people in other states more than you love your enemies? You see, when we were created in the image of God, we are expressing God's, we're expressing God's love as well. And God loves people differently. That's why the title of this message is A Special Kind of Love. This word in the Greek literally means there are different kinds. There are two basic different kinds that I want to just share with you for a moment about. And, and we can go into more detail on these but because of time, we won't. But there's a, there's a general love. The general love is, is a love that God has for all of mankind as a part of his creation. Even John 3.16 explains this. For God so loved the world, right? So God loves the world. Everything in the world, all of his creation, God loves it. That he sent his only begotten son. Now watch this. Now he des- describes a whole different people group, doesn't he? God loves the world. He sends his only begotten son so that different people group, whoever believes in him, he is showing a special love. The Bible says that he grants us repentance, that he gifts us belief. Paul told Timothy that we should thank the Lord, not only that we were not only that we were counted worthy to suffer, to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. God has shown a special favor to those of us who believe, a special kind of love. Now, let me make sure that I clarify something here. This is very important, okay? A lot of people believe that God is like this in heaven. You cannot be saved, right? And people are like, please save me. And Jesus, God is like, you cannot be saved. You are not one of my elect. Okay? That's how a lot of people view God, right? So that would be totally unloving, right? Would you guys agree with that? If people were like begging God to love him and he was like, you know what? You're not a part of my love group, so forget it. That wouldn't be very loving, would it? But here's the true reality Man says and curses God every day. Man says, I don't want anything to do with you, God. Leave me alone. And and God says to some, okay, 
I'll leave you alone. But you know what he said to you? You know what he said to you and to you? He said, no, I will not leave you alone. And he embraced you and he made you his. And he began the process of changing you into the image of his son. Not because you begged him to, but because he loved you enough to embrace you for himself. God never rejects anyone who wants to be saved. Amen? But remember this too. No one ever wants to be saved unless God causes them to. General grace, general blessing, God gives it to everybody. Psalm 145, verse 9, the Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. Matthew 5 and verse 45b, he makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. 1 Timothy 4.10, for to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the savior of all people. Notice that who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. In other words, the work of Christ and God's love has an impact on everybody in the world. But it has a special impact on whom? It has a special impact on us. The reality of it is, folks, every breath that a lost person takes is a grace. It's mercy. It's God's kindness and love for them to allow them to take another breath even though they are guilty of sin and deserve to be killed in that moment, to be punished, right? Not only that, but they get nice cars and nice houses and they get good jobs. Do you know what all that comes from? Do you know where all of those things come from? They come from God's favor, from, from God's kindness. God shows a general favor. However, God also shows what we know of as a special favor, a special love. And that love is specific towards his people, those whom he has elected and chosen before the foundation of the world. And, and again, remember this. This whole idea of election, it's so controversial, and it's so difficult, it's so hard to understand it. It, 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 is, it, 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 it in many ways, it is divisive. But the basic, the basic foundation for why election is not meant to be divisive, but meant to be treasured, is we understand the depravity of man's heart and how much man hates God at his very core. And yet God chooses to embrace some men. Does that make sense? The gospel of election is not, and the gospel of special, the gospel of God showing special love to some and not showing it to all, it, listen to me, it is not meant to make you arrogant. It is not meant to make you feel like you're better than other people. It's meant to make you humble. It's meant to make you thankful, and it's meant to make you evangelistic. Because listen, 
the same love that God hath bestowed upon you, the same grace that God hath bestowed upon you, he can bestow it on anyone. Did you know that? By that little message in God's word called the gospel that you share with your neighbor who is currently unsaved, God can take that and he can make that person a a part of his special favor group. Do you know, it will never happen until we realize the special blessing that we have received from God. And we desire it for other people. Most of us see the fact that we're Christians because we've done something good and we think, you know something, my neighbor just won't do anything good. (laughs) You didn't get saved because you did anything good. You got saved because you were dirty, wretched, worthless. I'm probably going to get fired after this message. (laughs) Sinner whom God chose to reach down from heaven and pull you up out of that junk. You know something? That guy sitting next to you, that neighbor living next to you, that person down the street, they can experience that same thing through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Is that true? Know what you have. Know what God has given you. Love it. Cling to it. Treasure it. Be thankful for it. Wake up every morning and say, God, thank you that I am one of yours. And then offer it to other people. Offer it to them through the preaching of the gospel. One of the things of general grace is the fact that it includes the offering of the gospel, doesn't it? Listen, I want to give you a few verses here, and then I'll go into my last thought. Deuteronomy 7, verse 6 through 9, you can read it. The Bible talks about the fact that God did not choose the Israelites because they were great in number, but because they were significant. 1 Corinthians 1 says that God has not chosen us because we are great or significant, but because we are weak and poor and frail and nobodies. Ephesians 2 and verse 4 and 5 says, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love, not because of his general love, but because of his great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Amen? Amen. Titus 3, 4, and 5, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by our own righteousness, but according to his great mercy, by the washing and regenerating and renewal of the Holy Spirit. A special love. God has shown you a special love this morning, and that is that you can be called a child of God. So we've got to know the distinction, number two. Focus on the love of God. If you have struggled with your security this morning, focus on what Christ did for you. Number two, know the distinctions. And number three, trust the impact of God's love. Watch what he says here. And I'm going to give you these. There's three points in this point. So I'm going to give them to you very fast. Okay? We're going to get done in just a moment. He says this. See what kind of... Love the Father hath given to us that we should be called children of God. Number one, notice this about the impact of God's love for us, that he calls us his children. God's love is so much. The idea of this term is that God, it's like, it's like adoption, that you walk into that adoption room and, and you see all these kids and God says, 
that one's my kid. And all of a sudden, his finger is pointing at you. That one's mine. He's my child. And he brings you into his fold. And that's what the Lord talks about when he talks about adoption. That he walks in and, and, and those kids have no control at all of who gets adopted. The one who has control is the one who is adopting. And he points his finger and he says, he calls us Prettyman. That's Prettyman there. Right? That's Christ. That's one of mine. And he adopts us one by one. God's love is such that he calls us his children. It's good to be called God's children, isn't it? The Bible says that God gives us his spirit within us so that we can cry out what? Abba or Abba, Father, right? It is his spirit just simply confirms in us what God has called us. You are one of God's children this morning if his love is on you, special love. Love that calls us his children. Number two, love that promises us perfection. He says, at the next verse, he says, um, beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. I just want to make this statement. The word know here is a very significant Greek word. It means, it, it carries with it the idea that we already know it as if it already has happened. In other words, our Christ-likeness, although it is a process that we're, we're moving towards that, we know that it's also already true about us. We are already perfectly in the image of Christ right now, but we are being made in the image of Christ every single day. Does that make any sense at all? I mean, that's, what, that's why God is God and I'm not. Right? Hebrews 10 tells us this way, that Jesus Christ is perfecting those who have been perfected. How can you perfect something that has already been perfected? God is perfecting us. And not only is he perfecting us, but he's promised us that perfection. He's promised us that, that to us. And we know it as if it has already happened. Like Abraham, God said, Abraham, you're going to go to this place and I'm going to show it to you and it's going to, be a, it's going to be all of yours. And Abraham marched every day not knowing where he was going to go. But he believed as it had already was his. That's what the Christian life is all about. Believing what God has promised us as if it was already ours, because really it is already ours. And it's already ours based upon who has promised it. Amen? A love that calls us his children, a love that promises us perfection, and lastly this morning, a love that motivates us to move. He says, and everyone who hopes thus does what? Everyone, listen to me, everyone who believes these things to be true does what? Stays back with his family and doesn't pack up his bags and doesn't move towards a place. Is that what it says? Everyone who believes like Abraham believed. The Bible says Abraham believed and it was accounted unto him for righteousness, right? Everyone who believes like Abraham did, which resulted in his 
packing up his bags, packing up his family, doing a few things he was told not to do, right? Okay, isn't that grace? And moving in the right direction. That's what God calls us to. It's like we claim to believe that God is making us perfect. We're not marching. God wants us to be moving. The love of God, the Bible says, the love of God constrains us. It compels us to move towards the promise that he has given us. Hebrews chapter number 11, you're familiar with this passage of Scripture, the, the hall of faith. And each one of those men and women in that chapter had a promise from God, and they acted on that promise from God. And that's what faith is. Faith is acting on God's promises. In closing, like any parent who desires for their children to grow up in a secure, stable, and confident environment, to grow up confident of their parents' love. God desires for his children to be in his love, to be confident in his love, to be stable in his love, to be secure in his love, and to know that his love is undeserved, unearned, and unconditional. We can do nothing to get it, and we can do nothing to lose it. He wants us to rest in that reality. God wants us to rest in his love. The greatest way that we can worship God this morning is by resting in his love. That was displayed in his son's sufficient sacrifice for our sins. He promises us in Hebrews 13, 5, that he will never leave us nor forsake us. And he promises us in Hebrews 11, verse 16, that he has a place that he has prepared for us that we will one day go to. You know what the Bible says? The Bible says this, that that place is so great that God is not ashamed to be called our Father. In other words, he says this, all of the suffering that you're going to go through in this life, all of the difficulty is not even a touch, a drop in the bucket compared to the glory that you are going to be received. And God is not ashamed to put you through all of that suffering because he has an extraordinary reward for you. This morning you may be here with us and you may be thinking, I can do nothing to get in, I can do nothing to get out. I understand that, but maybe you say, I, I don't even know if I'm in God's love. I know that I've experienced that general love where he's, yes, he's given me a nice house and a nice family, and a nice, but I've, I've never experienced that love that says I'm his child. I've never experienced that love that has, has promised me that I would be perfect one day, and I've never experienced the love of God in such a way that it motivates me to move. You say, Pastor John, what do I do? My encouragement to you is this. God calls you to be broken. The Bible says in Isaiah, I believe it's chapter 60 or 66, that God's eyes are on those who are of a broken and contrite spirit. These are the ones that he pays attention to. God is not looking for sacrifice and offerings, but he's looking for those who have a broken and contrite spirit. My my plead with you this morning. If you're here and you say, I, don't not, I do not know if I'm in God's special love, my plead to you this morning is to be broken by your sins. 
to, to confess before God your sinfulness, to recognize that you do not deserve his favor, that you can do nothing to get his favor, and to know this, that God says in his word, if we will confess our sins or our sinfulness, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So what we need to do is, what you need to do, what I need to do is, we need to recognize how unworthy we are and know this, that God shows favor to the unworthy. I close with this verse in 1 Timothy 1.15. Paul talks to Timothy about the fact that Jesus Christ came to save sinners, right? He says, of whom I am the chief. What Paul knew is, when we become nothing, Christ becomes everything. And it is the absolute opposite of what the world will teach you. But it is the absolute truth that leads us to salvation. Father, we thank you this morning for that special love that you have bestowed upon us through your son Jesus Christ and your spirit living within us. We have no claim of no reason within ourselves to, for that to be a reality. Lord, it is, it is all of your grace and your mercy and your goodness towards us. We pray that if there's someone here this morning that doesn't know you, that they would, they would confess their unworthiness as well and they would, by faith, embrace what Jesus Christ has done and experience that same special favor that only you can give. That, Lord, may not result in these earthly treasures, but definitely is going to result in heavenly and eternal treasures. We pray your blessing upon the remainder of our time, Lord, in Christ's name. Amen.